I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are. In the next hour, you're going to meet one of the guys who started the Mortified series by getting up in front of a packed bar and reading a love letter he wrote as a 17-year-old. Hello, Leslie. How was your day today? Mine's quite well, I must admit. I do hope that yours is a good one, because what you are about to read may or may not add extra color to the rainbow at day's end. This is the show whose rainbow just got rocked. This is... From the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire with Dave Nadelberg and Neil Catcher from Mortified, writer Adam Seltzer and music from Laura Veers, plus comedy from our troupe, The Escape Artist, and even more music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Well, hey there. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Live Wire Radio, recorded as always in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, and if you've listened to any of the shows during my short tenure as host, you know that I am not exactly shy about sharing embarrassing moments from my life. And this week, boy, we have a real doozy. Uh, in fact, this might be a case where less sharing uh, would have been better. But I was inspired because on this week's show, we've got Dave Nadelberg and Neil Catcher. Uh, they're the guys behind the new movie Mortified Nation, which features people reading embarrassing stuff that they wrote as kids. Like this understated little poem that Neil wrote after being set up on a blind date to the prom. Glance over to the persecutors and then release your fury. The beginning of the end, the damnation of love, the hellfires of paradise reign free as the good take the night like raging packs of wolves. Now that um, poetry was how Neil says he processed not having a girlfriend when he was in high school. But ironically, when he read it out loud many years later, it actually helped him get a wife as he will explain here in a couple of minutes. Speaking of embarrassing situations, we're also going to talk to Portland musician Adam Selzer, who is not a religious guy himself, but somehow ended up in Germany accidentally playing a string of Christian rock festivals. 
and not really hitting it off with the locals. He had a, um, a Nazi patch on his sleeve, so I was kind of creeped out. But it turns out it was like, a, like an anti-Nazi movement. Adam's going to tell us about his new graphic novel, Ami Go Home. Plus, we've got music from the amazing Laura Veers, all coming up this hour. First, though, uh, back to that story that I was mentioning, the one that uh, I probably should not have told in front of a live crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater or maybe replayed here on this public radio station. Yes, so um, here's how that started at the Alberta Rose Theater. A very easily embarrassed 13-year-old Luke Burbank was in the Kingdome in 1989 watching the Seattle Mariners play a baseball game when he realized he really, really needed to use the bathroom. Of all the places on earth, I was not going to use the public restroom. The Kingdome was pretty much at the top of the list. So I made a decision. I was with my friend's family, by the way, at this game. I made a decision in about the second inning when my stomach started to rumble that I was not going in that bathroom no matter what happened. And I held it in for probably about six innings. And I have vague memories of those six innings. I did astrally project myself out of my body for a good part of the game. Every inning, it was becoming exponentially more painful. And I would do that thing, I don't know if, you've, if any of you have done this, or you'll cop to it, where you're trying to act like everything's normal. You're talking and smiling, but it's like you have flop sweat forming around like the ridge of your forehead. Finally, I think it was in about the eighth inning, I, I just, I broke down and I thought, whatever is waiting for me in that bathroom can't be worse than what's happening to me right now in this seat. So I, I gingerly got up and started walking towards the bathroom. And that, by the way, was in and of itself somewhat of a feat to get there. And I go in and there's like, every stall has a line of like 10 guys. And I'm inadvertently doing a, like a dance in the bathroom to hold it in, and this guy looks at me and he kind of laughs, like not even in a mean way, just like a, I've been there, brother, kind of way. But because I was 13 and very easily mortified, I got embarrassed even in that moment, and I looked at him like, yeah, everything's cool. And in the moment that I looked at him, I started concentrating on his face and not concentrating on what was going on in my basement. And that loss of concentration proved to be fatal <laughs> because it was a giant explosion. And at the time, I was really into wearing loose-fitting boxers. So there wasn't even like a sort of last line of defense. <laughs> and I, I'm just com completely and totally bewildered and I don't know what to do next. And I'm still like three people from even getting into the stall. And I'm so embarrassed still that I don't even have the presence of mind to say, hey, guys, can I get cuts? I have sort of a situation here. So I wait, and I shuffle into the stall, and I close the door behind me. And I don't know if you guys have had that kind of moment where you literally don't know what the next move is. <laughs> Sometimes you know what the next move is, and you don't want to do it. This is one of those things where you're just like, we're just improving now. And because it was a sports stadium, it had one of those, the toilet paper dispenser would only let out one section of toilet paper at a time so that hooligans couldn't, like, run the toilet paper into the toilet and, you know, waste it. I just remember sitting in there and taking my pants off and taking my shoes off and 
kunk pulling one section of toilet paper off at a time. Kunk. I learned something that night. One thing was, if you have a stomachache, just go to the bathroom, like right away. I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're, if you're in an RV with the Queen of England. Go, just go to the bathroom. Because the alternative is way more embarrassing, and I speak from experience on that. The other thing I, I learned later that night when I, I got, managed to get home and I took an inexplicable shower at 11.30 at night, something really weird happened, which was I got up the next day and I was not dead. I had survived. And I had survived, as far as what I could think of, the most embarrassing thing that could ever, ever happen to me. And I had been so afraid of being embarrassed and I had carried around so much just general kind of mortification that to survive having the most embarrassing moment of my life was kind of transformative because I realized, oh, that didn't kill me. Like, I thought there was an amount of shame that would literally kill you. <laughs> and I was testing those waters with this incident at the baseball stadium. But I just kind of, so I had some kind of weird breakthrough, literally and figuratively, um, that <laughs> night. I had a weird kind of breakthrough of like, oh, embarrassing stuff doesn't, it does not kill you. It doesn't feel great. But I have since then moved through my life as a person who is weirdly less embarrassed than I think a lot of other people are because I just went into the eye of the storm <laughs> on embarrassment, you know, and like, and lived. And so I guess I would say if you're somebody like, uh, like I was, if you're somebody who's easily mortified, just remember next time you're in an embarrassing situation, breathe. Remember that, you know, tomorrow the sun will rise in the east and the birds will keep singing. The world will continue spinning on its axis. You're going to get through it. Also, it could be worse. You could be a 13-year-old who <laughs> his pants at a Mariners game. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got that, at least. <laughs> All right, let's, let's do this radio show, you guys. Our musical guest tonight has released nine studio albums since 1999, has been a New York Times critic, uh, critic's choice, and was recently featured on NPR's Heavy Rotation, her newest album, which she'll be playing in Paris and Brussels and Manchester. And seriously, stop bragging, Laura Veers, about these amazing places you're going to be playing music. She'll be playing all through November in Europe. Her new album is called Warp and Weft. Please welcome Laura Veers to Livewire. Thank you. Trembling. 
It's Laura Veers. Her latest record is Warp and Weft. You're listening to Livewire, where poor social skills and a complete encyclopedic knowledge of the music of Neil Diamond is not a cause for concern. It's actually something to brag about. Coming up next, we've got the great Dave Nadelberg and Neil Catcher from the only reading series that brings you actual diary entries 
from people's teen years. It's called Mortified. We've also got Adam Selzer, who has his own story of mortification, which has now been turned into a graphic memoir. Plus, we've got more music from Laura Veers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to LiveWire. Hey, LiveWire would like to give a special thanks to our Northwest Radio partners for their generous support. 101.9 Kink, Progressive Rock Radio here in Portland. KUOW in Seattle. And, of course, our hometown host station, KOPB. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> I said, so do I sound French? <laughs> <laughs> that is too funny. Wow, Mike, this is a great apartment. Oh, thanks, Sally. I love it. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how nice it was to go out tonight. Work has been a real bear lately. Yeah, how many Starbucks locations do you own? Um, 11. <laughs> yeah, lots of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, every time I'm coming off the red eye from Paris or Madrid, I needs me one of your coffees. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> we're there to serve. Wow, this is quite a collection of books. Oh, The Sound and the Fury. I have always wanted to read this. Oh, yeah, that's one of my personal favorites, uh, about breaking the sound barrier and the fury of the men who did it. Um, no. No, it's not. Oh, what am I thinking about? I have no idea. Oh, oh, Sound and the Fury. I think that's the one about creating the first radio, or maybe I'm thinking of the story of Helen Keller. Uh... Let's talk about something else. Sally, Sally, hang on. I don't want to screw this up. I've got to confess something. I've never read that book. Oh. Why did you say you did? Because I wanted to impress you, and I thought maybe we were going to have sex tonight. <laughs> Mike, it's our second date. Oh, right. So we were definitely going to have sex. Okay, Mike. Sally, this isn't my apartment. I'm house-sitting. Oh, it's fine, you know? I mean, because <laughs> this isn't my original nose. <laughs> I should have told you that on our first date. Wow, geez. Uh, well, since we're being honest, uh, I'm not house-sitting. I was actually burglarizing the apartment next door <laughs> when I heard the guy that lives here say he was leaving the country for a month. I broke in, and I fell in love with it. <laughs> well, that's so funny, because I have something to tell you, too. Remember that bar you picked me up in last week? I wasn't meeting a friend that never showed up. I was collecting a debt. 
collecting a debt? Yeah, you know, sometimes people borrow money from other people, and when they don't pay on time, I attempt to persuade them to pay using various things like guns or bricks or one time a cobra. <laughs> well, I'll be. Okay, I'm not a flight attendant. I'm on the do not fly list for suspected art smuggling. Now, you know that when I say persuade, I mean shoot them or hit them or make the cobra bite them, right? That's so weird because when I say art smuggling, I mean smuggling 18 to 50 balloons of heroin inside my body. And you know what? I don't actually own 11 Starbucks. I've actually burned down 11 Starbucks. I'm dabbling as an arsonist. I love fire. And my name isn't Sally either. It's Donna. Mine's not Mike. It's Steve. No, another lie. It's Ruth. Dave. Amanda. Bill. <laughs> Hi, Bill. I'm Amanda. Nice to meet you. Hi, Amanda. I'm Ron. <laughs> it's nice to meet you, Ron. Care to go into a strange bedroom and engage in sexual congress with a guy named Ron? Absolutely. Well, Ron's waiting for us in the bedroom. My name is really Steve. Okay. <laughs> Let me get my lighter. <laughs> Andrew Harris and Laura Faye Smith. If that is their real name. In the late 90s, Mortified founder Dave Nadelberg found an old love letter he'd written in high school but never sent. After friends cringed and laughed in all the right places when he read it to them, he rented a theater so that he and others could share their shame with the masses. That is how Mortified was born now over a decade and countless cities later. Dave and co-producer Neil Ketcher have a TV show, two anthologies, and they've just released their first documentary film, Mortified Nation. Here, take a listen. I just put down my Anne Frank diary. I can really relate to her struggle. She said, a lot of what I wrote is about the two of you. And we said, what could you possibly have said that would be bad? Dear diary, mom is a dork, a moron, and a geek. I hate her so much. Dad is a bitch and butt crust. Butt crust? I mean, I don't know what that could... uh, That was her imagination. That was not one that, that you was... got for me, I'll tell you that. Please welcome Dave Nadelberg and Neil Ketcher to Livewire. So what are the, the rules, if you will, of a Mortified show? Because there are now a few different venues for people to talk about their lives, to, to share you know, personal stories. What are the rules for, for a Mortified show? Um, yeah, so there has been this whole storytelling explosion going on in, in the country for the past uh, probably seven years. But uh, with Mortified, I think what sets us apart is that uh, it's people reading aloud their actual uh, childhood writings. And not, actually not just reading aloud, sharing. Sometimes their, their home movies, sometimes their, uh, their artwork that they make. And you, and you see a lot of that even in, in the film that we just were putting out. What is the process for shaping a piece as it like how do they come to you and then what do you guys do to make it sort of fit with what you're doing with mortified well i mean uh, essentially um there's a workshopping process everybody that comes in comes in with their raw stuff that they found and a lot of times they have tons of stuff and they kind of don't know where to begin because you don't really know what is awful about awful the poem about your you wrote when you were 15 <laughs> Because you have your own writing, but you how you respond to, you, to your own experiences often clouds what's actually 
your memories actually cloud what you actually wrote. So you have a reaction to it. You might be mortified by something that is not necessarily mortifying to a stranger. So we work with people to sort of help them understand what is both mortifying or fascinating about their past. You seem terrified right now, like you're, you're thinking about your own poetry. Well, I just that you told, wrote told a story about crapping my pants at a baseball <laughs> game, so I feel like I'm kind of an open book here already with these fine people. Um, so uh, you're saying that a lot of times when people bring in, what, a stack of trapper keepers yeah. from middle school? Sometimes they literally bring in a shoebox. And they start going through it. A lot of times, are you guys, you have to gently point them in the direction of what is interesting and what's just only interesting to them because they remember that they were really into Flock of Seagulls at the time when they wrote this love note. And by the way, that is an automatic uh, sign of, yes, that is interesting. <laughs> if, it, if it has Flock of Seagulls. If, but, I mean, if Flock of Seagulls or Kaja Gugu reference, we're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is good. Um, I mean, are people, but this is people's real lives. It's very personal to them. Do they take it okay when you tell them, sorry, that part of your life is actually not interesting to us? Generally, actually, what we tell people is that your writing is too good for us. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually a compliment to not participate in Mortified. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're not lame enough. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, our curating process isn't an audition, so it's not about your talent. It's not about um, effort. It's literally about the crap that you're stuck with that you just happen to save. And so um, when we work with people, we, we, we basically just... Um, we're collecting time. So we say, oh, I think we found about 30 seconds worth of material, or maybe we found six and a half minutes, and we're ultimately looking for, you know, about eight minutes worth. And if we only find 30 with somebody, we give them tips on, like, where we think, based on their childhood writings, where they seem to be lamest. And... Um, <laughs> And, and give them some, like, you know, if you can find more poems about your dad, it seems to be, for whatever weird reason, all your father figure poetry is really awful. Find more of that. As opposed to the great father figure poetry that's being written by many people in yes. their teens. Yes, yes, <laughs> We're talking to Dave Nadelberg and Neil Katcher. They're the guys who put Mortified together. It's also a documentary film now called Mortified Nation, which you can watch through iTunes and Apparently on your video game console, yeah. I learned in the ride over here. Yeah, that's uh, the new way of uh, distributing independent films. Is not just iTunes and Amazon, but uh, you can you can buy and rent our film Mortified Nation through PlayStation and an Xbox. What do you guys make of this trend now? And you guys have been doing this for a long time, so credit where credits due. But this uh, this trend on public radio, in particular, where there are so many people who are unloading such personal stuff. It seems to be very popular these days. Do you think we were always fascinated with this kind of stuff? Uh, are we just now, because of social media and other things, like less embarrassed about sharing these kinds of things? Why, why does it seem to all be kind of coalescing now? I actually think just audiences are tired of, of, of a facade. Um, and I think we really hunger for, whether it's in reality and unscripted, you know, quote-unquote, uh, stuff, or whether it's uh, in the scripted world. I think we're hungry for, for authenticity and sincerity, and it's just created this, like, please give me more of that, in, in w whether that's in a, in a scripted television show like A Parenthood or whether that's in a, an unscripted uh, program like a This American Life uh, or, 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 you know, in a film like Mortified Nation. What kind of stuff do you have to turn down? Is there ever stuff that's maybe borderline you know, libelous? I mean, is there stuff that pertains to violations of the law? I mean, what do you have to turn down? 
Uh, we, we welcome all sorts of libelous material. No. So <laughs> nobody's ever, I mean, you haven't had something where somebody called later and said, hey, our, you were, that poem was about me, and I'm, like, not cool with that? Our, our big rule, though, when it comes to what, what uh, people share, I think, it's not really about libelous, but I think we care that the person who's make, getting made fun of on stage is, is uh, or what's being shared, um, the person on stage is actually making fun of themselves. So it's not about trying to out someone or make fun of somebody who's not in the room. Um, it's more about inclusiveness, and we would never want to point out, um, you know, it's not about, ah, aren't you ridiculous? It's about, wasn't I ridiculous when I was a kid? Um, Neil, you have uh, actually a poem that, uh, that you're going to share with us, correct? Can you give us the backstory on this? Sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the poem that I'm going to share is actually, uh, actually share part of it in the movie, um, when I was a kid, um, I was actually incredibly, um, I really wanted a girlfriend really, really, really bad, but I just never had the guts to ever bother to ask a girl out because I just could not face that rejection. And so instead of sort of own up to that, my, in my childhood mind, what I decided was that I would become incredibly angry and bitter at the world. Well, that really draws them in. <laughs> and I would take out that anger through poetry. Um, as all, as all yeah. great or awful poets do. Yeah. So, yeah, so I wrote this poem um, after I was set up on a blind date to the prom. Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> this is Neil Ketcher from Mortified. Um, so uh, this is Untitled. Death to the tormentors. Glance over to the persecutors and then release your fury. The beginning of the end. The damnation of love. The hellfires of paradise reign free as the good take the night like raging packs of wolves. Hate and destruction kills all evil. They play that grand old symphony with pleasure as the listeners shriek in pain. <laughs> Cover the secrets and let be known the obvious for the first time. The omnipotent coward controls the tired puppets. <laughs> Entertain us and laugh at yourselves. Time has no place in the eternal flame. Venom shall spew from the angels' hearts. Poison soothes the soul. Freedom rings loudly inside the guts of the oppressors and curses the downtrodden. It will all happen in the past. <laughs> it should have ended there, but it kept going. <laughs> Look into the eyes of the blind one, and it will guide you. Those winners lost the war, and those losers are dead. So go home and wait for the apocalypse of the world. Neil Ketcher. Wow. I love... 
I love how spare the language is. I just love the simplicity, <laughs> how it's not in any way overwrought and doesn't sound like a, a, a track off of Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy. <laughs> Which you, it sounds like you were listening to maybe when you wrote that. Yeah, it definitely, definitely has that sort of like late 70s, early 80s, like, <laughs> going on in there. They come from the land of the ice and snow. Yeah. Um, but then you met your, your, your wife at a show where you read, did you read that poem? I did read this poem. <laughs> and somehow, inexplicably... A woman came up after the show and said, I, I really connected to that. <laughs> and then after you got a restraining order against her, you met your future wife, right? I did, and w- what I eventually found out was that she had similarly dark poetry that she wrote after sort of leaving being a born-again and going to Berkeley. <laughs> and so, she, yeah, so she wrote very dark poetry of which I don't even, so dirty, I don't even know if I can repeat here. And uh, actually at our wedding, which is kind of fun, um, uh, you know, normally people at, at, at their wedding, they'll do something where they'll have Emily Dickinson or, you know, something meaningful and deep. We decided as a way to commemorate our relationship to, um, uh, I had my mom read this poem that I just read. <laughs> And her what a lady. Da- her dad wrote, read one of her poems, uh, which we, we did edit down because he was not going to say, my clitoris scissors magazine clippings. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is so interesting that this was, in essence, your first date, right? Because you were basically, in being kind of laid bare, you're doing the exact opposite of what we all do when we're first dating someone, which is pretending to be a totally different person than who we are. <laughs> right. <laughs> and hiding all of the parts of us that we don't want the other person to see. And yet, you and this mortified movement, if you can call it that, is really about just putting it out there and I guess being like, hope you like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do find it incredibly fulfilling and ironic that I, at all of my efforts for over a decade of being single as an adult, I couldn't get that far. Um, and yet I'm reading this sort of angry poetry that this 17-year-old kid wrote that is terrible, but somehow, like, his bitterness at the world ended up, like, fulfilling what I, you know, wanted. So I, I've always been happy about that. Um, do you guys have things that you created in your childhood, whether it was a mixtape or a, some snippet of a thing that you can't find anymore and it kills you and you're tempted to just try to rewrite it? Can, well, pass it I, off as original? No, like... I think we're we're good enough about about that rule, but there are things that um, that really do not us. Like I know that my best friend and I, uh, Kevin, we we used to make these um, uh, like radio serials, like on, on cassette, and we had one called Dave the Maniacal Killer. Like I don't <laughs> I don't think we knew words yet fully. <laughs> no, maniacal call is a word. Maniacal, and I just, it was like some like serial thing, and I just I it was just a radio play about me killing people, and he was always. <laughs> all the victims. Um, and I erased, I taped over it with like R.E.M. And I don't even like R.E.M. now. And all I want is my serial killer thing. Everybody uh, hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Nadelberg and Neil Katcher. The documentary is Mortified Nation. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's Luke here in the studio. You know, that conversation with Dave and Neil from Mortified, it kind of got me wondering, 
Is all this sharing of childhood angst, is that really such a good idea? So I figured I would talk to somebody who actually knows, family therapist Vanna O'Brien. Hey, is this Vanna? Yeah. You are a family therapist from Portland. How long have you been doing this? About 35 years. Have you heard about this um, this idea of the Mortified series where, where people get up on stage and read stuff from when they were kids? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, heard about it. Now, as a, uh, a licensed therapist, would you say there's any therapeutic benefit for the people who are up there sharing their kind of their childhood embarrassment with these perfect strangers in a bar-like setting somewhere? Yeah, I think there's something therapeutic uh, about it. Um, You're talking about, I don't know, any of these people out there, and that does make a difference whether or not you have your entire assembled family out in the audience listening to this, because sometimes that's the opportunity to say things about the, you know, the hideous Christmas thing, which various relatives misbehaved awfully, you know, you want to tell this story, and, and some of the incentives. You know, I'm going to be laughing about it, but I want to be sure that Uncle Max really hears how he embarrassed me. So there's that kind of aspect of who's hearing it. So I think there would be a certain kind of entertainment distance that would exist. You know, I'm just telling this story because, you know, I'm just being funny up here. I'm telling this funny story. You know, yeah, I can see that. In this film, Mortified Nation, that we're talking about on the show this week, uh, one of the producers met his uh, his future wife after he'd done this really embarrassing reading, which is kind of interesting because it means it was a relationship for these two where embarrassing stuff was on the table kind of right away, which seems to be the opposite of what we do in relationships, which is we try to make sure that the other person never figures out the embarrassing stuff about us. Maybe it isn't all about laying everything on the table right away. Uh, is there any benefit to actually trying to go through the entire relationship, not letting the other person know how truly lame you are? They'll find out. I mean, they will find out. The, and the serious answer to that is, if you think you're really lame and you've done some things that you're either hideously embarrassing for you or really shameful, and you don't share them. As time goes on, they begin to um, really develop sort of um, mammoth weight in your consciousness to the point where you may feel, oh my God, this person says they love me, they want to spend their life with me, but if they knew this horrible thing which I'm keeping from them, it's now becoming, you know, huge, momentous, probably disproportionately so, because it's being withheld. So, you know, I think one of the questions is, why are you telling it, and why are you withholding it are both important questions. But also there's this notion about love that what love really means, or when love is really working in a relationship, it's uh, because you can just let everything hang out all the time to this other person. And I say this as a person who's been married unsuccessfully uh, before and is now married once again. I say there's a little something to keep in some of it back. I'm with you, but you have to make a decision whether or not, is this something I'm very deeply ashamed of? Will this hurt the other person if they know it? And how sure are you of that? Are you just protecting yourself, or do you really want to let it all out? Because I've seen the whole range of that, and sometimes the choice to let it all out because it's going to make the person who's speaking feel better 
is, is going to be very hurtful and damaging to the partner. I've always wanted to ask this question of my therapist, but I don't know if I'm really allowed to. So I'm going to ask you, Vanna. Are you therapists just the most centered people? I mean, are you just like never in a reactive state? Are you just completely attending to yourself in every situation and doing all of the things that for normal people like me involve a tremendous amount of concentration as I move through the world? Ah, no. And, and if you talked to my husband, to whom I've been married almost 50 years, or my kids, they would say, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no. Well, that's no, a huge can't. relief, Anna. I feel I feel a little <laughs> less messed up after this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, but see, you're not my therapist, so I can say that to you. Right. You know? Exactly. See, there's a lot of rules. I'm still learning the rules. Vanna O'Brien, family therapist in Portland, Oregon. Thank you for being on Livewire. You're very welcome. Portland family therapist Vanna O'Brien right here on Livewire Radio, which is brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, committed to supporting farmers and serving fresh local food in easy-to-carry burrito form. So good, so close. More information at laughingplanetcafe.com. Okay, let's head back to the Alberta Rose Theater. Adam Selzer has been an indie rock staple here in the Northwest since the beginning of the aughts. Is that what we're calling that decade? That never sounds right. There's no good way to describe that period of time. Well, let's just never talk about it again, I think is how we should proceed. Sorry, things that happened between 2000 and 2009. Uh, Anyway, back to Adam Selzer. He fronted the band Norfolk and Western, touring with M. Ward and most recently playing in the Alleluia Choir. In 2003, he was asked to open for a German band called Noise Toys, which ultimately meant he ended up touring Europe and playing his solo acoustic folk at giant Christian rock festivals. <laughs> it did not go great, which is the subject of a graphic novel written by Selzer and illustrated by Nick Chobin. It's called Ami Go Home. Here to tell the story, please welcome Adam Selzer to Livewire. Adam Selzer, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. So how did you end up playing? You are not, as I understand it, a Christian music artist per se? I, I am very secular. Yes. So how no. were they receptive to your music, or did they notice at some point during the performances, there's been a decided lack of God in this music? I, you know, honestly, I don't know if it was so much the lack of God. It was just the fact that I was, you know, singing these kind of sad folk songs, and, and they were there to see basically a bunch of heavy metal bands. And I don't know, I don't know who thought that this would be a good idea, but uh, <laughs> it happened, and it wasn't a good idea. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, those sad folk songs, could you play one for us? Yeah. Um, so this is a song that I played on that tour. This all happened in, in uh, fall of 2003, so exactly 10 years ago. And this is a song called um, At Dusk After Dawn.
What's your price on poverty? No, I don't believe in all the signs you tied to faith. Cause faith is just for those who need it most. And the rest pretend that they're all blessed. What's your price on brotherhood? No, I don't believe in all the idle time I waste. Cause time is all I have to brace myself. For the dwell I pretend to possess and What's your price on commodities? Yes I do Feel the need for all those tools of sound Cause without song, we'll lose our sight of God Not the God that tells them they're all blessed Adam Selzer. Not exactly the most um, Christian of songs, but I played it anyway. So when you were accidentally touring with a German Christian metal band, as, you know, happens, yeah. were you getting uh, a lot of um, evangelism going on? Were people trying to... I grew up in, in a very evangelical kind of environment as a kid, and you know, the, the Bible says go out into all the world and, and preach the gospel. So as a person who, of that particular brand of Christianity, you often feel it's your job to really tell other people about how much they need to be Christians. Were people constantly trying to preach the word to you? Yeah, um, there were definitely a lot of moments like that. And um, I, I, I kind of like debating those kind of things, and, and I was set in my ways. And um, so it, I I, I thought it was really fun, and it was a challenge to talk to them about these things. And they would kind of do it at really odd times where um, one of them, would, I would be alone with someone, and then they would kind of take me aside. And, and um, you know, I, I knew they were, they were trying to do me a favor and think that they were saving me. And so, you know, I, I knew it was out of goodwill, but uh, definitely wasn't something I was interested in looking into in a further way. <laughs> A friend of mine, Andy Haynes, is a comedian, and he says if, if somebody tells him Jesus died for his sins, he goes, I was reading that. He dies? <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Ami Go Home, what is that a reference to? Explain that for people that aren't familiar. Uh, there's a scene in the book where um, there's a guy outside who's saying Ami Go Home to me, and I didn't 
know what that meant, and he, he had a, um, a Nazi patch on his sleeve, so I was kind of creeped out, but it turns out it was like, a, like an anti-Nazi movement within this organization, so it was... They got to really watch those arm tags. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's pretty misleading. <laughs> um, no, so, this is the thing we don't like. Yeah, he, yeah exactly. swastikas. I mean, he, we're covered he was in just them, joking around with me, but um, at the time, I, I was pretty creeped out and, and didn't... <laughs> didn't know what was going on. Good. Adam Selzer, his new book is Ami Go Home. Adam, thanks so much, man. Thank you. This Livewire podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot. Have you read the articles? Sitting is the new smoking. And also sitting is apparently the new Big Mac. And did you know that even if you exercise every day, if you sit for the rest of the day, you might as well be smoking a pack of hamburger-infused cigarettes. But Ergo Depot is here to help. They've got an entire line of ergonomic chairs and sit-to-stand desks designed to keep you moving all day, improving circulation and core strength, and ending your 10 chairs a day habit. Get more information at ergodepot.com. Coming up next, we've got more music from Laura Veers. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Alrighty, folks, it's time for a little segment where we answer all of your burning questions and just a few of the itching ones. We call it Dear Livewire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We should totally hook up, Dear Livewire. Uh, we get all kinds of questions from our live audience. I want that to be my ringtone, by the way. <laughs> I love that song. I wish it were more than 15 seconds long. Uh, we get questions from the live audience here at the Alberta Rose. Uh, people send them in via Twitter and sometimes in the parking lot over 40s. Just these conversations break out in the most unexpected places. Anyway, when we get the questions, we call on experts to help answer them. This week's question comes from our friend, listener Lynn, who asks, what happens if the lion doesn't sleep tonight? <laughs> to answer this one... We are turning to Laura Weiner, the senior lion keeper at the Portland Zoo. <laughs> Laura, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you so much for having me this evening. <laughs> All right, so seriously, what happens if a lion doesn't sleep tonight? <laughs> well, actually, the best part about that question is lions have no issues sleeping at all. They are some of the best sleepers of all animals in the world, so never really a problem for them. They uh, sleep approximately 20 hours every single day. 20 hours a, a day. 
So they're basically my teenage daughter. Basically, yeah, kind of the thing. Yeah. Why do they need so much sleep? Um, well, one of the reasons they can actually get that much sleep is that they don't really have to worry about anything else. When you're at the top of the food chain, you can do whatever you want. And if any of you have cats at home, you probably notice most of the time, they just sleep. That's all they do, except when you get on your computer and then they feel like they need to be on your keyboard. But other than that, you know, that's about all they do. <laughs> Well, I mean, Laura, you are a lion expert, but I think we can downshift to a cat conversation for a moment. If, 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 a, if a common house cat were as big as a lion, would it try to kill its owner? Um, well, you know, there are some cats that for no reason scratch you. Um, you know, it's really more of a play thing they're doing. Uh, lions would probably just bat you around if you were out there the same way your house cat would. So uh, sometimes you've got to watch out for them. They can be kind of sneaky. I've just always assumed that the reason, like dogs, if you made a dog the size of a cow, it would just be a cow. It would still be, I think, relatively docile. But a cat, if you made it as large as a lion, I would say run in terror, right? I mean, are they just, are they plotting our demise, but they're just not big enough to act on it? Uh, it's quite possible. Um, you know, they are always thinking of ways to um, get your attention. And then when you want to give you, you know, you want to give them attention, they can't be bothered kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, are, are, do lions, when they're sleeping 20 hours a day, are they like in REM sleep? Are they having like lion dreams? Or are they kind of on the alert because maybe a different lion wants to come fight them? That's a great question. They actually are always on alert, uh, especially the male lions, because they're always worried about another male coming in and taking over the pride and driving them out. So, and it's the same thing, or if you watch your house cat or a lion, because a lion is really just a big version of a house cat, you can see them when they're sleeping, their ears are still twitching, so their brain is still pretty active, and they are always aware. That's uh, very typical for felines. So they're just lightly sleeping. You'd say they're sort of catnapping? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> That's why we came out here tonight, so I could get that joke in, everybody. Good, good it's time. a lo long climb for a short slide. All right. <laughs> Laura Weiner, Senior Lion Keeper at the Portland Zoo, thank you so much for being on Livewire. You are welcome. Have a great day. Dear Livewire, as always, brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. New Belgium is proud to present Accumulation, a white IPA created for the season when thermostats start going up and scarves stop being worn ironically. More information at newbelgium.com. All right, one more time, please. A warm round of applause for Laura Veers. Thank you. I never had a chance 
was she watching up above the clouds? What happened to her spirit? Is it still in the ground? I can hear it in that spinning flat. Living in a jukebox, so coming back. That is Laura Veers, and that is our show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Adam Selzer, Dave Nadelberg, Neil Ketcher, and Laura Veers. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art. The Oregon Arts Commission and National Endowment for the Arts and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the best hotel in America, if you ask me. The Hotel Deluxe in Portland. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy group is Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Our head writer is Courtney Hameister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and me. Our guest writer this show was Alex Falcone, sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our engineer is Bram Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Special thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Live Wire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about our show or how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Thanks for hanging out with us. We will see you again next week.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs> 